So let's turn tonight in our Bibles to a well-known portion of Scripture, Matthew's Gospel, and it's chapter number 6. The sixth chapter, please, of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. Matthew chapter 6, and we'll begin to read, please, at verse number 5. Matthew chapter 6 and verse number 5, and we've been thinking as you well know by now, about some of the great aspects of our approach to God's throne in the attitude of prayer. And we've been dipping in and out of different portions of Scripture, and this isn't the first time that we have visited uh, the sixth chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 6 and verse 5, the Savior says, When thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. And when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking." Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your heavenly Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. After this manner therefore pray ye. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And then we'll go down a little bit further in the chapter to verse 25. Verse 25, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they spin, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? And which of you by taking thought can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. God will bless the reading of his precious word to each and every heart. One problem that many of us perhaps, if we're honest, struggle with, one problem 
in the church with regards to Christian living and praying, both individually and collectively, is oftentimes how man-centered, how self-centered, how organization-centered, and sometimes how even denomination-centered much of our activity and much of our motivation and much of our praying can be. Sometimes we are very inward-looking whenever we pray and we seek the face of God and we think about our little kingdoms and our little empires and we think about our homes and we think about our immediate needs and there's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes we are motivated often by our own organizations, our own empires and our own desires more so than the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of God. A Christian is a person who has been brought into a new kingdom. Jesus Christ our Lord said, Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of God. In John 3, the Lord said, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. But once we're born again and once we're converted and we enter into God's kingdom, the Bible says in the book of Colossians that we have been translated or lifted out of the kingdom of this world. We've been lifted out of the kingdom of darkness and we have been brought into the kingdom of God's dear sons. We are, we are kingdom of God's dear son. We are citizens of another kingdom. Philippians 3.20 says our conversation or our citizenship is in heaven. And therefore we are to live with that kingdom in view. The Christian is to live for and for the glory and for the extension of another kingdom. The kingdom of God, its values and its extension are to be first and foremost in our thinking. And we are always grappling with this. The old man is very much tied to this world. And the self-nature and self-will and self-seeking and self-desires often dominate our living, dominate our desires, and dominate sometimes as well even our praying. But the reality is that our lives in this earth are not so much about this world and this kingdom, but rather about Christ's kingdom and the kingdom ultimately that is to come. So as we think again tonight about prayer and approaching the throne of grace, it's good to think about what the Lord is teaching here in Matthew chapter 6, verse number 10. After this manner, therefore, pray, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. And then verse 33, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now, as we think for a few moments initially about our Lord's teaching in this subject, you'll notice that, that the Lord in his earthly ministry very clearly, if you like, sets out his stall. Subsequent to the Lord's baptism and to the Lord's temptation in the wilderness, the Son of God commenced his earthly ministry with this tremendous sermon that we often call the Sermon on the Mount that begins in Matthew chapter 5 and concludes in Matthew chapter 7. Three wonderful chapters taken up with the Son of God preaching 
about the truths concerning his kingdom. And the very fact that the Lord commenced his earthly ministry with preaching this great sermon, I believe it highlights, first of all, that preaching was central in his ministry, and the preaching of the Word of God and the preaching of the truths concerning God's kingdom should be central in the ministry of the church. And whenever we think about the Sermon on the Mount, the three chapters in it, chapter 6, of course, is central. And central to chapter 6 is this great prayer that the Lord taught his disciples to pray. It's a pattern prayer. It's a template, if you like. We often call it the Lord's Prayer. We might be more suited to calling it the disciples' prayer. The Lord's prayer is in John 17, the prayer that he prayed before he went to the cross. But he gave his disciples this prayer. And I don't think there's anything wrong with quoting this prayer and re-echoing this prayer and using this prayer. But really the Lord's prayer or the disciples' prayer is a template and a pattern of how the Lord wants us to pray. And it covers some of the great subjects that the Lord would have us to consider in prayer. And central to it all is the petition, as we seek our Father in heaven, that his kingdom would come. That is, that his kingdom would be extended. That his kingdom would be exalted. That his kingdom would be added onto that people will be brought into his kingdom and that one day we will see the kingdom of God coming with great power and great authority. And the Sermon on the Mount really shows us the very nature and pattern of what it means to be a true Christian. And central to it all is this petition to pray that God's kingdom will come and then also the encouragement and the exhortation to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things shall be added unto us. And yet if we're honest, and if I'm honest, so often in our praying, we come before the Lord, and we bring our needs before him, and we pray for our burdens, and we bring our needs before him, and our wishes, and our desires, and we pray about our homes, and our families, and our needs, and maybe our churches. And dear friends tonight, that is right, and that is good, and that is true, and that is proper. It's important to pray for ourselves. The Bible encourages us to do that. It's vital to pray for others, especially for those that the Lord has given us influence with, our homes, our families, our loved ones, our friends, people that we rub shoulders with day by day. It's important to pray for our church. It's important to pray for our denomination. The Word of God, I believe, encourages us to pray for the things that concern us. But underlying it all and overriding it all, we should be praying first and foremost for God's kingdom to be extended and for God's name to be glorified and for God's will ultimately to be done. We are not placed on this earth to be empire builders. We are placed in this earth to live to God's glory. We're not able to do that in the flesh, but whenever we're born again and we're brought to Christ and brought into the kingdom of God, we are given the ability and the grace under God to a greater or lesser degree to live to God's glory and to live for the extension of his kingdom. Leonard Ravenhill is a preacher that I'm sure you've heard me quote from time to time. And 
He's a very quotable preacher. And he made a statement once, and it's so true. He says it is possible to increase the size of your church, but not increase the size of the kingdom of God. And I believe that is a very real truth in this society we're living. Some churches are growing, but oftentimes when you look at them, they are growing at the expense of other churches. And it seems that church membership in our society is very fluid. And some churches grow and some churches diminish. Some churches' membership increase. But by and large, the kingdom of God, as far as the evangelical church is concerned, maybe isn't extending or growing or coming with any great force or any great power. And it's our prayer, and it should be our prayer, that the Lord would extend His kingdom, and the Lord will build His church, and the glory would be His. And if the glory is His, and we're faithful to Him, the blessing will be ours. But dear friends, I don't know about you, but I don't want to see this church built at the expense of sister churches that believe and hold to the same truths. I want to see this church, I trust, built under God by people coming to faith in Jesus Christ and the unchurched coming in and hearing the word of God and getting converted so that God's kingdom is extended and God's church is built and God's name is glorified. And if people leave compromised churches and liberal churches and churches that don't preach the gospel and churches that deny the faith, apostate, liberal, dry churches, well and good. But I take no delight in, in, in trying to steal sheep from other churches. And encourage people to come to us because we can put on something bigger or something greater. Dear friends, whenever the Lord taught his disciples to pray, he didn't pray that their little empires and their little kingdoms would grow. He encouraged them to pray that Christ's kingdom would come with power and that his kingdom would be extended. And then he encouraged them to seek first the kingdom of God. We are not responsible for building God's kingdom. He's responsible for it. We are just called to be responsible to seek that kingdom and to promote that kingdom. And if we do it in a biblical way, I believe God will honor us and God will build his kingdom and he might allow us to have a small part of that. But what is the kingdom of God? There's a lot of talk sometimes about terminology in the Bible. And sometimes people divide and make distinctions and differences. The Word of God speaks about the kingdom of God. It speaks about the kingdom of Christ. It speaks about the kingdom of heaven. It speaks about the kingdom of His dear Son. And some people have gone to great lengths to make distinctions between all of these different terms. But really, they're all one and the same thing. There are 70 references in the New Testament Scriptures to the kingdom of God. And if you study carefully Matthew's Gospel, which really speaks about Christ the King, there are so many references in Matthew's Gospel to the kingdom of heaven. Now, whenever you think of an earthly kingdom, a kingdom comprises of a particular realm. We tonight are part of the United Kingdom. And that denotes a realm, Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and it's a kingdom. There's a realm, there's territory involved, and so it is with God's kingdom. God's kingdom is a universal kingdom. 
And then a kingdom oftentimes denotes a sovereign ruler or a king. And Christ is the the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he's the the head of the church, and he's, he's the sovereign over his kingdom. And then a kingdom as well denotes subjects, and all of humanity, in one sense, is subject to God as king. But not all of humanity are faithful subjects. But those who have been born again of the Spirit of God have been brought into the kingdom of God and God becomes our Father and Christ becomes our Lord and we are brought into the kingdom and we become members of that kingdom, loyal subjects we trust to the kingdom of God. Now, God's kingdom is eternal. In the Old Testament scriptures, you have what we might call a past administration of God's kingdom that comprised largely of the Jewish nation. And then whenever you come into the New Testament scriptures, the kingdom of God really began to grow and develop and the Gentiles were brought in. And those who had trusted God and those who knew Christ as Savior, whether Jew or Gentile, all became one in Christ. And so there's a past aspect to the kingdom of God. And then, of course, there's a present reality regarding the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is a present reality. There are those who have the idea that God's kingdom is yet future, and it hasn't even been set up yet. But God's kingdom is an eternal kingdom, past, present, and future. Whenever the Son of God was in this world, he said in Luke's Gospel, chapter 17, verse number 20, when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. And he indicated there that the kingdom of God in, in that present time was, in a sense, invisible. It's not a, it's not a worldly empire yet where you've got a king sitting upon a throne with governors and politicians making rules and regulations. It doesn't come with observation. And that's a verse as well that we can take to heart because sometimes we have the idea that not much is happening as far as God building his church and extending his kingdom is concerned. But the kingdom of God doesn't always come with observation. God does not always show us what he's doing. God's kingdom is invisible in some senses. We often talk about the visible church and the invisible church. And then in verse 21 of Luke 17, the Lord says, neither shall they say, lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Whenever you're born again of the Spirit of God, you're brought into the kingdom of God. And there's a sense as well in which the kingdom of God enters into you. That's why the hymn writer said, the men of grace have found glory begun below. Celestial fruits on earthly ground may grow. The kingdom of God is a present reality. And then, of course, the kingdom of God has got a future, a glorious future. And this, in part, is what the Lord is calling us to pray for. Thy kingdom come. Friends, there's coming a day whenever Jesus Christ will reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. He's doing that right now, but there's coming a day whenever every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I trust that you're looking forward to to that day. What are the implications of praying concerning God's kingdom and seeking first 
God's kingdom. Kingdom living means submission to the laws and to the governance and to the sovereignty of God's kingdom. Now, amongst professing Christians in this day and generation, that is not all that popular a thought. A lot of people don't like to acknowledge the Lordship of Christ. They don't like to live some in light of eternity. But if we have truly been brought into the kingdom of God by the new birth and we've been converted, it's the Christian's privilege to live for the extension and the furtherance of God's kingdom and the uplifting and the glory of God's name. Now, there's a negative aspect to this. If the Lord has translated us out of the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his dear son, therefore there needs to be a a separation. A Christian is a citizen of another kingdom. They're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. The Bible says our conversation, our citizenship is in heaven. And therefore, like Abraham, we are just pilgrims passing through this world. The world is spoiled for the Christian. Whenever you're born again and you begin to walk with God and you begin to grow in grace and grow as a Christian, the things of this earth, as the same word it says, they dim and they lose their value. And things of eternal worth and eternal purpose become more valuable and more important. And whenever you think about the souls of men and you think about your loved ones and you think about your family, and while you desire their their earthly good and their earthly prosperity and their health and their strength, and you want them to do well in this world, primarily you're concerned about their relationship with God and their soul's salvation. And as Corrie ten Boom says, the Lord wants to wean us more and more off the things of this world. She said in all of her experiences in those concentration camps, she began to learn to hold the things of this world with a very light grasp and not to get the tent pegs down too deep and to be ready to leave at any given time. What shall it profit a man, the Lord said, if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? Christians to live in light of eternity. That's why the Bible says in in Titus 2 that the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good acceptable and perfect will of God. And friends, sometimes whenever Christians think about worldliness, they maybe think about drinking and smoking and gambling and going to certain places. But you know, worldliness can be bitterness of heart. Worldliness can be a proud spirit. Worldliness can be apathy and self-will and self-seeking, things that can so easily be hidden. But those are not things that extend the kingdom of God. Separation from the world. Crucifixion of self. Whenever the Lord calls us to follow him, he calls us to bear his cross or bear the cross. And the cross meant death for the Savior. And the cross also means death to self. I started reading just the other day the biography of Stephen Alford. 
I don't know if you've ever read any of his books, but he was a tremendous expositor of God's Word. He's one of the old Keswick speakers. And if you remember a number of years ago going across to John Gowan in, in County Fermanagh, who's uh, sell second-hand Christian books. And I asked him one time, have you got any of the old Keswick Week books? And he says, I, I have, but they're in the house. He hadn't put them out on the shelf. And he came out with a big pile of them, and I, he was selling them for about three or four pounds each. And I, I brought a whole pile of them home from the 1950s. And the Keswick Convention was a convention in the Lake District in England, a beautiful setting. And in the 1950s, they had some of the great evangelical preachers come and preach the Word of God, men like Alan Redpath and George Duncan from, from Scotland, and men like Stuart Olliott and Paul Rees and Stephen Alford, Duncan Campbell, great men of God. And, and, and Stephen Alford, if you ever read his biography, it's thrilling reading. He was born the son of missionary parents in Africa and told some remarkable stories of how the Lord saved them and delivered them from lions and all sorts of tribal problems and different things that happened. But whenever Stephen Alford was converted in his teens, he, he left Africa to come and study in university. And in university, as a young Christian, he was influenced through all sorts of liberal thinking and liberal theology and liberal teaching. And his faith was called into question. And his faith was really shaken. And Stephen Alford began to grow cold in heart and began to backslide. He was studying mechanical engineering. And he had a great interest in the internal combustion engine and he designed a new type of motorcycle carburetor that was able to use a lot less vapor. And he attached it to one of his own motorcycles. And he became a, an accomplished motorcycle racer in his late teens and won several trophies. One day after race, he was bringing three of his trophies home and something happened. The front wheel of his motorcycle and he, he came off it and he was badly injured and he spent a long time in hospital. And his father wrote to him from Africa and sent him a letter. And, and in the letter, simply he was quoting Charles Studd. He knew that his son was backslidden and wasn't living for God. And he just wrote those words, Stephen, only one life. It'll soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. And he turned that over in his mind, over and over and over in his mind in his hospital bed. And whenever the nurses were away, he slid out of his bed and got down on his knees. And he simply prayed this prayer. He says, Lord, you have won. And I surrender my life to you now. Taking you as King of kings and Lord of lords. He says, Lord, if you heal me. Get me out of hospital. I will serve you by your grace anytime, anywhere, and at any cost. And a number of months after that, he was walking down a boardwalk in a seaside town, and he met a missionary who had been serving the Lord in some of the islands. And this missionary had heard that Stephen Alford was going on well with God, and he began to challenge him about his walk. And Stephen Alford says, well, I've surrendered my life to the Lord. He says, would you be willing to get down right now and tell God again just what you've told me? And a boardwalk with hundreds and hundreds of holiday makers, and they get down on their knees, and Stephen Alford repeated that prayer again, Lord, any time, any place, any cost. And he began to really go places for God. 
crucifixion of self, separation from the world. That's what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. There's a positive aspect as well. Christian living is a positive thing. Verse 33 of Matthew 6 says, seek first the kingdom of God. And the Greek word that is translated there, seek, indicates to seek especially by worship. It means to seek consciously, to seek conscientiously, to seek constantly, to seek committedly, to seek first the kingdom of God, Christ first in our allegiance, Christ first in our affections, Christ first in our ambitions, Christ first in our arbitrations, all of our decisions. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seeking first God's kingdom. And then verse 10, supplicating for God's kingdom. When we pray, the Lord says, we're to pray that his kingdom might come. Adam Clark was an old Methodist theologian and commentator. And in one of his commentaries, he makes this statement. He says, he prays not at all in whose prayers there is no mention of the kingdom of God. He prays not at all, in whose prayers there is no mention of the kingdom of God. And as I read that statement, I asked myself the question, how much of my praying features praying for God's kingdom? Or how much of my praying is coming to God with a, a shopping list with all of my needs, all of my wishes, all of my burdens, and that's it? Or do I come before God's throne, first and foremost, here to seek God's face, seek God's glory, seek God's will, seek the exaltation of God's name and the extension of God's kingdom? To pray that God's kingdom will come is to pray that God's kingdom will be extended, that God's kingdom will be exalted. It's to pray that God's kingdom will be recognized, that God's kingdom will be revived, and that ultimately Christ will return. But I want you to notice in closing one last thing. Verse 33, there's an investment here. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and of course that involves prayer, and all these things shall be added unto you. One old Puritan said, I never found myself going to the throne of grace to pray for another, but I didn't receive something for myself. And to pray that God's kingdom will be extended is a personal investment for ourselves. We never lose out whenever we seek first God's kingdom. Because our Lord says, if you seek first my kingdom, all these things shall be added unto you. And maybe that makes us ask the question, what things is he talking about? That's why we read from verse 25, the Lord says, take no thought for your life. The word thought there denotes an anxious thought. Don't be worried about your life. Don't be filled with care and anxiety about your life, what ye shall eat, what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on. Verse 27, he speaks about your stature. That speaks about the physical free and the physical body. And then at the end of the chapter in verse 34, he speaks about the future. So he's really covering in general terms all eventualities, our bodies, our futures, our provisions for ourselves and for our loved ones, our families, our food, our clothing, how we put bread on the table, how we pay our bills, 
all of the things that we can be so consumed with in this world, things that are important and relevant and needful. But the Lord says, if you seek first my kingdom, all of those other things that the Gentiles, the ungodly, seek after and look for, he says, I will add all those things onto you if you seek first the kingdom of God. You know, if you're packing a suitcase, Sometimes it's hard to get the lid shut. But if you put the big things in first, it's usually a little bit easier to get the small things fitted in around that. I have to say that I don't have that problem. We were on holidays in the summer. I took three t-shirts, two pairs of shorts, one pair of trousers, one pair of shoes, and a toothbrush, deodorant, some socks, not that many, and a couple of other items that I'll not mention. And I didn't even wear all the t-shirts. My family and my wife and children says, is that all you're taking? And I says, listen, you don't need all that much whenever you go on holidays. Sometimes we pack a lot of things, but if you're packing a suitcase, whenever you put the big things in first, you can often fit the small things in around that. You put your shoes in, you get your socks and your toothbrush, Maybe not your toothbrush inside your shoe, but small things inside you. And you can fit all the small things in around the big things. And the Lord says, if you get the first thing first in your life, my kingdom, all of the other little temporal things, he says, I will fit those in around. I will supply. I will see to those things. You seek first my kingdom. First things First, John Wanamaker was a famous American businessman on the Northeast Coast. He had a very large chain of department stores. He also was president of what was the world's largest Sunday school at that particular time. He was also a spiritual advisor to evangelists like D.L. Moody. And then to top it all off, he was made postmaster general of the United States of America. And somebody came to him and they says, Mr. Wanamaker, you have so many irons in the fire. You're so busy. All of those department stores that you manage. And then you're postmaster general now as well. And you have so many things to contend with. You must be so, so busy. How do you cope with it all? And he said this. He says, as a young Christian... I read Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things shall be added unto you. He said, the Sunday school is my business and the rest are just the other things. There was a man who had got his priorities right. William Carey was a cobbler or a shoemaker or shoemender by profession. And as he began to really grow in grace, he got a heart for missionary work that eventually would take him to India. Pioneer missionary, father of modern missions, blazed a trail for God. But before he went to India, he would go from village to village and hamlet to hamlet, round about his locality, preaching in the open air and preaching and preaching and telling others about the things of God. And a well-meaning Christian friend came and says, William, I know you're enthusiastic but you're neglecting your business. You've bills to pay. You've got a business to run. You're so busy preaching and telling others about the God that you love and rightly so that you're neglecting your business. 
William Carey said this, my business is to extend the kingdom of God. I only cobble shoes to pay expenses. Seeking first the kingdom of God, an investment in time, an investment in eternity. And this is the kingdom that we are going one day to see realized and be brought into by sight, the kingdom of God. All other kingdoms will wax and we in our kingdoms, our organizations, our churches, even our very denomination that I trust, we love and we want to see blessed, they're all one day going to be gone. But Christ's kingdom is an eternal kingdom. And I believe tonight if we pray with the view that his kingdom will come with power and authority and we seek first the kingdom of God, his will be the glory. And under God, the blessing will be ours. God's saying, if you put my interest first, I will see to it that you are greatly blessed under God. May God encourage us tonight to pray and to seek his face.